Lord, we do ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. All this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I realize I've only been here a few weeks, and I don't want to be presumptive on our relationship as pastor and congregation, but I do feel as though we have enough uh, mileage uh, on our relationship, shall we say, for me to share some personal facts about myself. Uh, And one of those personal facts I I shared last week, I I like plants, and so if you ever come up to visit me in my, my office, it has been verified that I do have more plants and larger plants than anyone else in the church. Uh, But another personal fact, and this may be pushing the envelope a little bit, is that I am a weather geek. I love weather. Uh, Not just because we experience it every day, but I just love the study of weather. If I weren't a pastor, I would probably be a meteorologist. And I want to share with you a couple of stories of refuge as it uh, relates to the topic of weather. Um, So the first comes from about 13 years ago, 12 years ago, I guess. Um, My wife Susan and I had just moved back to the Philadelphia area from Pittsburgh, and we were here for a couple of months when uh, something called Superstorm Sandy uh, came through the area. And we live then where we do now. We live in Glenside, which is uh, in eastern Montgomery County, but we live on the top of a hill, which isn't sheltered by trees. And so we had uh, some pretty strong winds, which made our house make some pretty concerning noises. Uh, And for as much as the noises that the house was making were distressing, we decided that the noises that the wind was making outside were even more distressing And so we decided that it was a good idea to seek refuge inside the house and not go out. And it turns out that was the right thing to do. So we sought refuge uh, inside the house from an outside danger. But then there was another weather-related incident which happened a few years prior when my wife Susan and I were in uh, central Ohio. This happened in May. And uh, we came out of a large mall where we had been for uh, an hour or so. And we opened the doors, and lo and behold, what is outside across the road but a tornado? And this, my friends, is the holy grail of weather geekdom. (laughs) This, This is what I felt I had been waiting my whole life for to finally see a tornado in person. So if you talk with Susan about this, um, you will find that she did not share my enthusiasm. And as Susan is generally known as the Geiger with uh, more uh, wisdom and uh, capacity for self-care, she advocated us for, for us rather to not go after the tornado and the car, as I wanted to do, but rather to go back inside the building and seek shelter, uh, to find refuge uh, inside the building, even though we had had come out. So a couple of of silly stories, both of which are true, uh, but uh, they, they point to the fact that we face many dangers, many challenges outside of us, 
from which we want to run and hide. There, there are things that happen to us every day that make us want to find a refuge, to find a hiding place, to find a safe harbor. And that's where we find David uh, as the author of Psalm 7 this evening. Now, I read the superscription to Psalm 7 prior to verse 1 because it's uniquely helpful in setting the context for what it looks like to to seek refuge in the midst of hard times. And just a a little Hebrew geek thing, um, in the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, um, there are actually 18 verses in Psalm 7, the first of which is what we see in our English Bibles as the superscription. Uh, And so it's actually part of Scripture, which is... Uh, all the more reason to read that superscription tonight. But it it gives us a setting for what David is going through. What it tells us is that someone named Cush from the tribe of Benjamin had in some way upset David with his words. Verses one through four then proceed to flesh out the, the probable reason why David was affected so deeply by Cush's words. In those verses, David tells us that Cush in some way falsely accused him. David's experience in this psalm is one to which many of us can relate. Perhaps you've been falsely accused of something yourself, of having said or done something which you know you didn't do. Or perhaps someone falsely accused you by taking something you did say or do out of context and and distorted it. And perhaps... Being the victim of a false accusation, you've experienced some emotions that would naturally come uh, from that experience. Emotions like betrayal, or hurt, or mistrust, or shame, anxiety, or fear. I'm pretty certain that David felt some of those strong emotions as he processed his experience as well. In verse two, he says that what he's going through is so hurtful that he compares his accusers to a hungry lion, which threatens to tear apart his soul and utterly destroy him. And so what David says is it feels like I'm being torn apart by this this agony within me, this agony of betrayal, this agony of uh, being the victim of false witness. So what does David do? Does he lash out? Does he take revenge? Does he run and hide? Does he fire back? No. He doesn't do any of those. What we read in verse one is what he does and it's counterintuitive. David turns to God for refuge and deliverance. He says, oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. And so we're going to look at this song of David this evening using three points. God is a refuge against injustice. God is a refuge for the righteous, but there is no refuge for evil. The first of those points, God is a refuge against injustice. In verse one, David runs to the Lord in prayer and asks him to provide refuge, a place of safety, a place of rest, a place of deliverance. It's the same thing that uh, I did uh, trying to avoid Superstorm Sandy, or what Susan wanted to do to avoid the tornado. You might be surprised to learn that 44 out of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, nearly one-third of them, 
are all built around the theme of God as refuge in the time of a storm. God is a strong savior against all sorts of enemies who would seek to harm and destroy. As it says in Psalm 71.3, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me for you are my rock and fortress. The psalmist there is obviously talking about the Lord. The psalmist needs a place to hide because there's no other safe place to go. There's no refuge that will suffice. There's no defendable place. He knows that God is the best and the only refuge for him. Getting back to verse seven, uh, Psalm 7, rather, in verses 2 and 3, David makes it seem as though he's running from a physical threat. He says that there are many pursuers coming after him, and as we looked at a moment ago, he likens them to a hungry lion ready to rip him limb from limb. But David's faced lions before. He used to be a shepherd. In 1 Samuel 17, the then teenage David says this to King Saul as he convinces Saul to let him go out and battle against the giant Goliath who had come to intimidate and make war against the army of Israel. And so if you have a Bible uh, in front of you, please keep a finger in Psalm 7 and flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel 17, beginning in the 34th verse. And this is the account of what David said. But David said to Saul, your servant, speaking of himself, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So before, when David faced actual lions, he defeated them with the Lord's help. But there's something bigger than that that David fears here. Almost more of a mortal threat than an eight-foot-tall, 300-pound lion named Goliath with claws and teeth, something which could tear his soul apart, rending it to pieces. I think what David feels here is that unique threat, that unique pain of having his reputation ripped apart, probably publicly and probably by someone whom he knew and trusted and loved. And doesn't deceit or false witness always hurt more when it comes from a trusted friend or a family member? We don't know who this man Cush was, but we do know that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and for David to have been impacted so deeply by his words, he must have been someone whom David loved and trusted deeply. Perhaps he was a relative of David's successor, 
uh, predecessor, rather, Saul. Perhaps he was a member of David's court or was the father of one of his wives. That's all speculation, but suffice it to say that Cush was likely someone whom David loved and trusted. Otherwise, his words wouldn't have cut so deeply or hurt so, uh, so much. Moving on in verses three through five, David pleads his innocence in this matter to the Lord. It's, it's clear that David feels as though Cush's words, whatever they happened to be, were unjustified and untrue. David says, if I did what he accuses me of, Lord, then I deserve punishment. In Psalm 55, David says this about a similar or possibly even the same situation. This is what he says. Psalm 55, beginning in verse 12, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. So in Psalm 55, David's reflecting on the, the pain that comes from being wounded by a friend, by a loved one. And when a close friend or family member betrays us, there, there is a unique pain, a particular feeling of betrayal that cuts deeply and painfully. And that's because the pain we experience when we're accused or lied to is directly proportional to the investment we have in, in relationship with that other person. Perhaps you've experienced the situation or something similar. Maybe your situation hurt so much that it drove you to seek the Lord because he is the only one who could possibly help. In another place and concerning another situation, in Psalm 60, David says to the Lord, you have made your people see hard things. You've given us wine that makes us stagger, that we might flee to you. Have you been in that place? Have you received hard providences from the Lord? Have you experienced the consequences of your own sin or suffered because of the sin of others against you in ways that make you feel exposed? and deeply wounded and vulnerable. Well, just like David says here in Psalm 60, this this is an invitation from the Lord to flee to him because he is the one who is uniquely able to help. He's the one who is uniquely able to comfort. He's the one who is uniquely able to defend the defenseless. God's invitation to you, to me, to all of us, is that we would come to him and find in in him a refuge, a healer, a friend who can comfort and understand. One additional thought before we leave this point, and that is when accused, we always have a choice about how to respond, and that choice essentially boils down to one of two basic responses. Either we find our refuge in the Lord 
or we find our refuge in some other fortress that we've built for ourselves. And those self-made fortresses rather often seem like good options. We think that they're pretty steady because we've made them ourselves. We've supervised their construction. They may seem effective for a while, but in the end, we're always worse off. What are some examples of those do-it-yourself refuges? Some of them are pride or rage or self-justification or blame-shifting. Sometimes, though, instead of trying to find refuge, we just try to run away. We go to a place where we think we can escape from reality and use the otherwise good things that God created, such as food or sex or money or recreation or fantasy, as a way to get away from the threat or to numb ourselves so that we don't have to feel the pain anymore. David certainly makes the point in this psalm that running to the Lord is the only real refuge. And it's the best option because it's the only place where we can find our true safety and our true shelter from the storms that threaten us. The second point, God is a refuge for the righteous. In verses six through 10, you know, when we think of the the role of judges in our modern society, we think of men and women who punish people who have broken the law. Think of TV shows like Perry Mason or Judge Judy. We watch these shows to see justice meted out and to watch people who tried to get away with something get their just desserts in the end. But that's not what judges did in ancient biblical times. Judges were meant to decide disputes between members of society and uphold the rights of the innocent. Think of David's own son, Solomon, who wisely decided between the two mothers who claimed the same baby. Or think about Jesus' parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, where the widow kept going to the judge pleading, give me justice against my adversary. And that's exactly the plea that David makes to God here in Psalm 7. In Psalm 7, verse 8, he cries out to God, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. And I want to camp out with this verse for a moment because David's request is that God, as the capital J judge of the universe, looks at the merits of the case and finds that David is innocent in the matter. And there's something that is, is kind of difficult to parse out here because when David appeals to my righteousness, the, the righteousness that David himself possessed, his record of good deeds and, and righteousness before the Lord, when he appeals to that in verse eight, he isn't at all claiming that he's sinless. David knows that he is a sinful man. In Psalm 31, another one of the Psalms Uh, written by him, which begins, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. He confesses in verse 10, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So the righteousness of which David speaks in Psalm 7 is, is righteousness in a relative sense as it comes to bear in the matter of his conflict with Cush. 
In other words, what David's saying is examine the facts of the case and see that I am the righteous one in this matter. I did nothing to deserve the evil that this man is inflicting on me. David says, I'm the innocent one here. Vindicate me, Lord. Restore my reputation in the eyes of the people and don't let this man's sinful accusations cause me more suffering. And this section of David's song concludes with verse 10. My shield is with God, which can also be translated, my shield is God, who saves the upright in heart. Either translation of that verse works here. Theologically, we know that God is able to work to protect his saints, but simultaneously, that God's holiness and faithfulness is itself the protection that his saints need. David says again in Psalm 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And the psalmist says in Psalm 119 that God is his hiding place and his shield. David appeals to God's mercy, not to his own righteousness. He appeals to God's mercy because he needs protection and he never loses sight of that. And here's the other aspect of David's righteousness that I want to draw out from verse eight, that David knows even though he might be relatively sinless and righteous in this matter, his own righteousness is utterly unable to enable him to stand before the Lord. He asks the Lord in verse nine, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you, Lord, establish the righteous. In other words, David admits that he needs the Lord to establish his own place in God's kingdom. Lord, you are the only one who can seat me at your table, David says. He knows that unless the Lord does something extraordinary, something supernatural to secure David's place in his presence, David would have no more hope of God's favor than Cush, whose blatant sin has brought David low. Looking at another psalm attributed to David, Psalm 5, David says that it is only through the abundance of the Lord's steadfast love that he can enter the Lord's house. So in other words, David knows that he is a sinful man who can only enter into God's house and into relationship with God because the Lord is the one who shows him steadfast love and mercy. And like David, you and I are sinful people who have rebelled against God's law and who have offended his holiness time and time and time again. What hope do we have? We have no hope in ourselves uh, to be in any kind of peaceful relationship with God except that God would show us his grace, which is love and mercy that we do not deserve. The temptation for the person living back in David's time was to think that the sacrificial system that God instituted at the tabernacle was sufficient to make them righteous. You might be familiar with what that sacrificial system was uh, all about, what it looked like. Under that system, someone who had sinned would take an animal or something else of value to the tabernacle for a sacrifice. And it was through giving up that thing of value if it was an animal, it was uh, shedding that animal's blood 
that blood would substitute uh, for that person's blood. That blood would flow down the altar as evidence that God's righteous judgment had been satisfied. The penalty of sin is death, and this innocent one died in the place of the guilty one who deserved punishment. That's the system that David lived under. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, my supposition is that he realized that that system was in itself inadequate and was there to point towards something greater, not yet come. The system was inadequate because the innocent blood of sheep and oxen and bulls, simple animals, could never fully atone for the sin of man made in God's own image. Although it pointed to the form of restored righteousness through shed blood, it was inadequate as to the substance, as to its efficacy. And even at this point, a thousand years prior to the death of Jesus on the cross, David knew that he could never adequately atone for his own sin. He required the work of God himself in order to be counted as righteous. In verse 9, he says, Lord, you must establish the righteous in their places in your kingdom. In verse 10, Lord, you are my shield. You and not my own effort are what saves me. Anselm, an 11th century Christian monk and theologian, said that salvation had to be achieved by God, for no one else was capable of achieving it. Human beings were incapable of bringing about their own salvation due to the deeply destructive impact of sin on our wills and on our faculties. That's what we, on this side of the Reformation, call total depravity. We're not as bad as we could be by God's grace, but everything about us is in some way, to some degree, tainted by our own sin and the sin of others. But Anselm also said that salvation must be achieved by man because man is the one who has wronged God and must therefore make the wrong right. And so on the one hand, he's saying that man can't achieve the salvation, and on the other, he's saying man must achieve the salvation because he's the one who needs to make it right. He went on to say that our debt to God was so great While man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person to pay it must be both God and man. And so God, in his mercy, his mercy which we will spend all of eternity trying to fathom, in the fullness of time, sent his son Jesus who is simultaneously fully God and fully man, so that, as Anselm said, he who is his own, I'm sorry, he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. He who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. God himself provided the sacrifice. God himself provided the righteousness. The psalm that we're looking at tonight, Psalm 7, uh, David's appeal to God for refuge 
He is looking forward a thousand years to the shield from God's wrath that is the body, the broken body of Jesus Christ. As the prophet Habakkuk wrote when he was prophesying about the coming of the God-man, Jesus, 300 years after David's time, said, he said, the righteous shall live by his faith, looking forward to Jesus. And that's the refuge for the righteous to which David appealed, even though there's no way he could have fully understood it at the time. And it's the refuge in which we now live as Christians. And the final point, no refuge for evil. God is indeed a righteous judge. And as David points out in verse 11, a God who feels indignation every day. And we shouldn't take that term indignation lightly. It's not as though God isn't moved by our sin and rebellion. As David points out here, his anger against sin is constant. And the warnings of God's judgment against sin in verses 12 through 16 are a sobering call to repentance for us. If we are unrepentant, David warns us, there are consequences both eternal and natural. It would seem from verses 15 and 16 that many of the consequences to be suffered for unrepentant sin are things that occur in the natural realm. In a a sense, the natural consequences of sin are that we reap what we sow. For those who trust in Jesus, our hope goes back to what David proclaims in verse 10, that our shield against the wrath of uh, God is with God or is God's own son. We're saved because Jesus on the cross bore the eternal punishment for our sins that we could never bear and he shields us from that unbearable agony. But there is a stern warning here for us, or perhaps especially for us, in verse 11, that our sin makes God indignant. Part of being in Christ and walking in repentance is that we would want to turn from sin and turn toward God in very practical ways. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, don't, uh, paraphrasing, when he says, uh, don't disparage or, or look lightly upon God's kindness toward you. It's meant to lead to your repentance. And in today's psalm, the sin of the tongue is the context for where repentance is needed, at least in David's situation. And by that, I, I mean not only the false accusations, but all of the ways in which Cush and, and we today use our words to sin. There are many, many ways to do it. We, we do it through lying, through gossip, through boasting, through tearing one another down, through complaining, unloving criticism, coarse talk, cursing, even our silence. All fall into that category. Are there areas in your life where you sin using your words? Are there times when you're tempted to hold a grudge against someone else by rehearsing 
their sins over and over and over again in your mind or your heart? Are there times where you uh, do not let go of someone else's sin, but repeat it over and over again to them uh, as a way to punish them for what they've done? Are there times when you give someone the silent treatment, when you withdraw from a relationship with them, even though you might be in the very same room as a way to exact punishment on them? Do you gossip? Even in the form of a prayer request, do you bring up the sins of others and ask others to pray for them? Uh, But what you're truly doing is rehearsing their sins in your heart. Where might the Lord be calling you to repent? Solomon, David's son, tells us in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Not in the power of the sword, they're in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat of its fruits. That brings us back to the concept of reaping what we sow with our words and what David himself says in in verses 15 and 16, that those who practice sin fall into the very same trap that they've dug for others. So what does repentance look like for the person who struggles with his or, or her tongue? It looks like asking the Lord in humility to examine their own heart and to give them grace to confess sin and to ask forgiveness. In some cases, it might even mean going to the person whom you have offended, even if they don't know that you've been talking about them, and confess that sin. Or it might look like going to the person uh, in whose presence you've repeated that person's words or, or sin and asking for their forgiveness. But it also looks like practicing what David says in verse 17. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. In closing, if we truly rest in God's mercy because of Christ's righteousness and live lives of increasing thanksgiving for all God has done, a life of repentance will become increasingly natural for us in the place of sin. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we confess that we are sinful people who would so much rather create a refuge for ourselves rather than trusting in you to be our only and our best refuge. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us We pray that you would give us grace uh, to walk in repentance. Lord, examine our hearts, show us if there is any unclean thing there, and lead us in the way of everlasting life. Show Show us, rather, what it looks like to be men and women who have tasted of the limitless mercy of God through Jesus Christ. And may we be willing to embrace that grace and allow it to transform us from the inside out. All this we ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.